I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Uh, we are working our way systematically through this book of the New Testament. Our custom is that we work our way systematically through. And I'd like you to turn to Ephesians, chapter 2, um, starting in verse 11. I'm going to read from verse 11 through verse 22 of this little book that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in His one body, this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. I recently saw a German film called North Face. It's about the 1936 attempt to climb the north face of the Eiger, a mountain which reaches 13,000 feet into the Alps. Uh, If you're bothered by heights, by cold weather, and by unhappy endings, I do not recommend this film. Uh, the north side of the Eiger was one of the last unscaled peaks in the Alps at the beginning of the 20th century, and the German government actually made it a matter, the Nazi German government made it a matter of national pride to scale this mountain. Uh, the German propagandists wanted to find those true Aryans who would first make it to the peak. Uh, The film focuses on two men who became the focus of the nation's attention. They were not particularly political, but they were two experienced climbers by the name of Tony Kurtz and Andy Hinterstrasser. Uh, The two men, they were friends from children. They'd grown up since childhood. They'd grown up in the same city in Germany, and uh, they were partners and companions. They challenged one another and stretched one another, and whenever they climbed, which they did a lot in the mountains around their hometown, they always went together. In, in the film, the, the, a fictional character uh, was, was made, uh, and, and she, a woman by the name of Louise Fellner, first plants the idea of scaling the Eiger in the minds of Tony and Andy. 
Andy is interested immediately. He wants to go. Tony is not excited. In a conversation, you see Tony and Andy are speaking, and Andy says, this is our chance. This is our chance to be famous, to prove ourselves to the world, to do something that no one else has done before. We'll be a famous team, mountain climbing team. It will be remembered in history. And Tony says, it's too dangerous. I don't want to go. I do not care what people think, he says. I don't climb for them. I climb for myself. I climb alone. I climb just for me. And as he says these words, you can see Andy just kind of deflate his, his friend. As he speaks of his solitary commitment to climbing. Well, Andy decides he's going to go. He's going to climb the Eiger. Uh, he'll find a new partner. He's, he's going to do it. And the day he goes into their mountain brigade uh, to, to retire or to resign his commission to go climbing, Tony comes. And he stands next to him. And they re- resign their commission together. And he's thrilled. Tony's going to go with him. And as they leave the barracks to start the journey to Switzerland, Tony, uh, Andy says to his friend Tony, what changed your mind? Why are you now deciding to go with me? And Tony looked at him and he said, I realized that I don't climb for myself and I never climb alone. It happens in the life of every follower of Christ. Maybe it comes as a surprise to you, but it comes anyway. The realization that you don't follow Christ for yourself or by yourself. Uh, it's a shock to see how corporate the Bible is. Now, by the word corporate, which I'm going to use a lot today, I don't mean big business corporate. I mean community corporate. It, it's a shock to see how, much, how corporate the Bible is. It's a theme that provides Scripture from beginning to end. Uh, at the beginning, Cain says to God, even in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are. The implied answer. And at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, one of the glories of heaven is that, that people will be there from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Uh, it's, it's a corporate gathering before God. And our responsibility toward one another unfolds between Genesis and Revelation. This corporate nature of following Christ is a reflection of God Himself because God Himself exists as a community. We believe that God is a trinity. He is a triunity, one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the miracle of the Bible is that God has invited us into their happiness. I think the teacher, I, I think that the, the scripture teaches that it is impossible to live as a follower of Christ without a vital connection with fellow followers of Christ. You cannot obey the Bible and stiff arm God's people. And, and as you read the, the New Testament, you find that this connection that God wants you to have with other believers consists of more than just going to a Bible study or more than just playing golf on Tuesdays with Christians or more than just uh, watching Christian television. The Bible says uh, that to follow Christ faithfully involves joining yourself to the fullest extent possible to a local body of believers that a local body that baptizes people and, and celebrates the Lord's Supper and appoints elders and, and meets regularly for, for worship. Obedience to Jesus Christ means connecting yourself to the fullest extent possible in your life to a local body of believers. 
This is one of the themes that we find in the book of Ephesians. A theme that, that has not been as apparent yet, but it will come today. This book is a book about love. It's a book about God's love for us and how amazing it is and our love for one another. And today, we're going to transition to the next major section of Ephesians. And it's one of the first sections that focuses specifically on the corporate union of those who are followers of Christ. In fact, uh, in several ways, the text that is before us for the next several weeks, verses 11 through 22, parallels the passage that we were just in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You'll remember that Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 are about how we as individuals have become followers of Christ. And verses 11 through 22 are about the corporate transformation that takes place. You can see the parallels. In verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2, it talks about our lost condition before God. As individuals, we are naturally children of wrath. In verses 11 through 13, the emphasis is on how corporately we are an alienated people. In verses 4 through 9 of chapter 2, there's this description of how God has saved us. And then in verses 14 through 18, there's a description of how God has brought us near as a people. And then in verse 10 and in verse 19 through 22, uh, Paul writes about both first the individual and then the corporate consequences of us having been brought near. Uh, We're going to, as we did with verses 1 through 10, we're going to walk through this passage slowly. Today we're going to focus on verses 11 through 13. And then next week, Steve Wilson is going to unfold verses 14 through 18 for us. And then, Lord willing, on November 27th, we're going to finish and look at verses 19 through 22 of this uh, chapter. As, As part of my responsibilities to you today, I want to spend some time orienting you to this text, uh, really orienting you to the Bible itself. Uh, This orienting work, in fact, today is going to take up uh, maybe half of the time that we have together. Um, You'll see, if if you want to follow along on that ivory sheet that's in the bulletin, some of you have already got it out, you'll see what I want to do today is I want to talk, first of all, about two challenges that we face as we approach the text. This is a, a foreign text to us in some ways. It's not natural to our culture. And I want to orient you to the text uh, by talking about these challenges. And then we're going to talk about two lessons about our life together from Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Let's begin by thinking about these challenges. Immediately we have a couple problems as we approach uh, this text. The first one is that this passage is placed in the context of Jews and Gentiles. This context is, this uh, passage is placed in the context of Jews and Gentiles. We're entering a, a foreign world in which the biblical writers write and which the original audiences think in terms of these categories, Jews and Gentiles. And they're categories we don't think about very much. If you want to read the Bible, you have to be familiar with them. According to the Bible, the world is divided into two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. They're ethnic divisions, but they're also religious divisions. The Jews are at various times in the Bible called Hebrews and Israelites. If you want to be technical about it, they are called Hebrews up uh, from the first couple books of the Bible up until the Exodus. And then from the Exodus to the exile, they're called Israelites. And after the exile, they're called Jews. That's technically how you use those three terms. Regardless, 
one people known by three different names. And the Bible is, uh, the, the Jews are these ethnic descendants of Abraham. And they're the major focus of the Bible story. The Bible is the story of God's interaction with the Jewish people. Moses was their leader. David was their king. Jesus was, is their Messiah. Now, if you're not a Jew in the classification of the New Testament, then you're a Gentile. And to you, the Bible's a, a foreign story. You may have a great family, you may have a fine family tree, come from an oppressive country, but the Bible is not your story. As we enter the New Testament, you'll discover that the greatest threat to the unity of the church is ethnic. That is, what's the relationship between the Jews following the Jewish Messiah to Gentiles who have now come to faith in the Jewish Messiah? This is a debate that's in every book of the New Testament. What's the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians? That separation is not a separation that we think of today. Uh, Jewish and Gentile issues are not what divides the church today. The, the, today the church is made up almost exclusively of Gentiles. Um, we're all, almost all of us, to my knowledge, are Gentiles. Um, you, you aren't Jewish, but, but you probably don't even think of yourself in terms of being a Gentile. If, if I were to ask you to sit down and write ten things that are true about yourself, I'm a Gentile would not be on the list. You are a Gentile, but you just don't even think about it. It's not a category that you're familiar with. Paul is writing about a, a, an issue that the first century church faced. We don't really, yet he's still prodding us about how we think about the church. It was ethnic issues that were dividing the church in the first century. What would you say would be the chief obstacle to the unity of the church today? Hmm. I suppose if you were thinking on a grand scale, maybe you would be inclined to name denominationalism as a, as a great divider. Uh, the church is fractured. There's Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Mennonites. And, and I don't blame those folks. They all can't be Baptists like we are, you know. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're divided by our denominations. De- denominations can be useful. They have a very useful uh, function to serve, but they can be divisive. Maybe that, that, that's an issue. What I think about, though, what I want to think about, though, this morning is not just the grand scale. I want to think about us. Us. The 200 or so of us who associate ourselves with this congregation. If Paul were to write a letter to us and he in chapter 2 wanted to come and challenge us about our love for one another, what would he write to us? What would he write to you about? It wouldn't be Jewish-Gentile issues. I, I haven't received a divine revelation. I don't have a prophecy for you this morning. Maybe you'd like to disagree with me about this, but I wonder if the greatest threat that a church faces, maybe our church is generational and, and the cultural issues that accompany generational differences. There's a tremendous amount of grace in our church over this. A tremendous amount of grace. I speak to younger men and younger women and older men and older women and they both express gratitude to God for me for the, the other generation. But still, these issues are present. Maybe it, it rankles you a little bit when you come to church 
uh, over what someone wears, whether or not it's appropriate church attire, because that's not how your mother taught you to dress for church. Or maybe sometimes you leave Sunday mornings because um, you're, you're dissatisfied because there wasn't enough guitar in the morning service or there was too much guitar in the morning service. Not enough organ, too much organ. Or maybe it, it disappoints you that there aren't enough people in your exact stage of life uh, in your small group. Or you don't go to, to the men's ministry function because that's for the old men. You don't go to the women's ministry function because that's for the old women. Did I just say old women? It's for the more mature women in our congregation. So you don't go to that. Uh, maybe generational problems. Maybe. Maybe you have a suggestion that's better than mine that's a greater threat than the 200 people of our, of our congregation. But if I read the Bible correctly, there's always going to be something. If it's not ethnic, it's not cultural, it's not generational, there's always going to be something. You will always, in every congregation you are a part of, find some reason why being there is hard. Some reason why you might want to pull back. Some reason why you might be tempted to murmur or to grouse a little bit. You'll always be able to find a reason to drift away, to slide away, to align yourself exclusively in the church with people who are just like you. That temptation and threat is always present in a church. I've known people, in particular in Dallas, friends of ours, I watched over a period of years as they went from church to church to church to try to find the one that didn't have problems. They they tried to find the church that didn't have a reason that they shouldn't be there. And what they'd do is they'd go and they'd start going to this church and it was the best church ever and it didn't have any of the problems of their last church and they'd be there for two or three years and they'd get involved and they'd get to know people more and they'd see people as they really are Uh, and then after five years they'd say, you know, this church is really soured and they'd go to another church that was the best church they'd ever come across and didn't have any of the last problems of their last church and then they'd get closer and closer and find them again so they'd go somewhere else and somewhere else. You will always, you will always find reasons to drift away, to, to be pushed away, to be unimpressed, to be divided. The ethnic uh, challenge, though, uh, the ethnic tensions of Jew and Gentile are the first challenge that we have to enter into into this text as we think about what Paul is saying here. It's a foreign category for us. But the, the second challenge is this. This passage is rooted in corporate consciousness. It's rooted in corporate consciousness. Again, I'm not thinking about Walmart and McDonald's and big banks. I'm I'm thinking about community. Community. Uh, uh, Let let me explain what I I mean to you uh, by that. Verses 11 through 22 of, of this passage are addressed to segments of the church as they view themselves as part of a group. He's addressed them as individuals. Now he's speaking to two groups or two uh, uh, factions in the congregation, two sectors of the church. But we're not used to thinking of ourselves in corporate identity. In fact, as Americans, this is one of the things that we hold dear, that we're not like anybody else and we don't have to be like anybody else. Um, We have the freedom 
to be associated or not to be associated. We have the freedom to be independent operators in the world. There's other cultures in the world where if you were to speak to them about tribe or about family or about nation, they would immediately understand what you're saying. In fact, the individualism of the United States strikes them as very odd. But we come to a passage like this and it's this corporateness that is odd. Uh, think about how we operate. You have individual rights. You have personal rights. You must do your work in your school by yourself because if you look on someone else's paper or someone helps you with a project, you are cheating. Now, someday if you're at work and you have trouble with something and you go and ask a coworker and your boss comes to you and finds out that you asked somebody for help, he will not, he or she will not look at you and accuse you of cheating. But this is the way we are uh, enculturated. Uh, did you have children in your house or in your world who got Halloween candy this year? They knew for sure what was theirs. It's my candy. It's not yours. And it's certainly not our candy. Uh, everything you buy is customizable to your own preferences. You can make it your own. I'm trying to buy a new cell phone. I'm thinking about buying it. I'm having trouble because there's too many options. And once I actually settle on a phone, I can do anything I want to it to make it my own. It can get its own skin, its own ringtone, its own apps, its own features. It can be my phone, not just in that I paid for it, but because I have made it in my own image. It's mine. And, and, and you, again, you have an automatic reaction to be being labeled as part of a group, don't you? Uh, you hate it when someone thinks they know about you based on some characteristic that you have, some group in which they can place you. Oh, you're a man, you're a woman, I understand you. You're blonde, you're brunette, you're black, you're white... You're a conservative, you're liberal, you're a, 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 a senior citizen, you're a teenager. I've got you all figured out. You hate it when people label you that way, don't you? It, it irks you. In fact, you work really hard to overcome those stereotypes. I'll show you that I'm a math major and I can be cool. I'll show you. You know, you just... I just did that, didn't I? It was nice. You, you, uh, you, you, you hate it when people label you based on your group, or think they can figure you out. There's one example that I can think of in our culture in which we embrace this corporate identity. It's in our sports teams, isn't it? You miss, if you miss a, a game of your favorite team and, and you see a friend later and you say, you, you, it, you can, without uh, smirking, you can say to them, how did we do? Did we win? And technically, we didn't do anything. Uh, technically, uh, most of us were not participating at all. Howard Hendricks used to tell us that a football game was 100,000 people sitting uh, who desperately needed exercise watching 22 people play who desperately needed rest. Uh, we didn't swing, we didn't kick, we didn't tackle, we didn't throw, we did nothing. But there is a corporateness, there is a collegiality. Is there no? There's one example in our culture. Uh, and, and many of you experienced it in, in sad and painful ways this week, didn't we? When, when the we of our state and the we of the team for which so many of you cheer was just uh, unveiled this horror, this 
we shame. Anybody who calls Pennsylvania home felt this sense of loss. Uh, there's this corporateness here that maybe you can relate to, but it's not natural. It's a challenge as we approach this text. And I wonder, as my responsibility as a teacher of this passage, how, what, what's the best way for me to serve you with this text? I want you to know the contents of these paragraphs, but I want you to feel them too. I want you to feel deeply Paul's impact. I want you to, whenever we look at the Bible, if the, Bible, if the passage calls you to rejoice, I want you to feel that joy. If it calls us to repent, I want you to feel that mourning. I want you to feel the importance of the text. So, what should I do, I ask myself? Should I try to put you in this category of Gentile so you feel like a Gentile and then show you how you're excluded but now welcome through Christ? Is that what I should do? I'm not sure that's the best strategy as we go through the text. But I do think it's important that you understand the corporate nature of the Bible. Here's why. Understanding the corporate nature of the Bible helps you understand the gospel itself. Or, let me, let me start with somewhere else before that. It helps you understand God himself. Uh, in the Bible, we see the story of God's faithfulness to a people. He's faithful to the nation of Israel. And by looking at the Bible through the lenses of his faithfulness to his people, We learn things about God. We learn things about His power and His justice and His might and His mercy by considering how He's faithful to a whole people for thousands of years and across generations. God is with them. He's their God. He's faithful to them. And He's able to fulfill promises over the course of hundreds of years. The, the second reason, though, I think it's necessary to enter into the corporate nature of the Bible is because it helps us understand the gospel. Helps us understand the gospel. Um, in the Old Testament, the, uh, one of the things that the, the Bible tells us uh, is that, that Adam is our representative. The first man that God made, he's our representative and we are corporately in him We need to be rescued and redeemed because we're in Him. He's our representative. Uh, When I was in high school every year at the uh, Perry Central Junior Senior High School, the classes spend homecoming week in competition with each other. There's contests all the way through the week for homecoming. Um, There's costume contests and recycling program costumes and hall decoration costumes uh, contests. And, and each year, one grade, it's, every year it's always the seniors, the seniors always win, uh, wins a trophy for the homecoming week competition. They're the ones with the most team spirit. Uh, one year, our, our uh, faculty, the faculty set up in the gymnasium this huge obstacle course, and each grade voted and picked two people to run the obstacle race. And we gathered in the gym one afternoon, and we watched our teammates, our classmates, compete in this contest. And if, if the two of them, if the two people that you picked won, then your team, your grade, got points. If they lost, you didn't get any points. They were our representatives. Their ability to compete had an effect on our lives. The Bible tells us that there is this corporateness to humanity, and Adam is our representative. 
and his failure to obey God that we read about very early in the text of the Bible has been imputed by credited, been credited to me. Before birth, by nature, I, I fail before God, I stand condemned before God because my representative failed. Before you take a breath, before you make any conscious choices in your life, you and I are already objects of God's wrath. That's the corporate nature of the Bible. You see it in another story in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 18, God's speaking uh, to himself and he sees Abraham and as an expression of his friendship with Abraham, God decides to share with Abraham what's he, what he's going to do. Abraham, God says to Abraham, Abraham, do you see the city over there? Sodom, Gomorrah, they're immoral cities. I'm going to destroy them. Abraham starts to intercede. His, his nephew, Flot, lives in the city. So Abraham says to God, God, uh, you're, you're righteous, you're just. If there are 50 righteous people in that city, will you spare the city for 50 righteous people? Or, In other words, God... Will you count 50 people's righteousness as, as making this city worthy to save? For the sake of those 50, will you save the city? God says, yes, I will. <laughs> Abraham's not too sure about Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says, God, will you save the people for, will you save the city if there's 45? If there's 45 righteous people in the city, will you, will you save them for, for the 45? God says, yes, I will. Abraham says, now, God, <laughs> um, uh, you're, you're a righteous God. Would you save them for 40 people? Yes. 30? Yes. 20? Yes. 10? 10. If there's 10 upright people in the city, God says to Abraham, I will spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Huh. Well, you know the story. Were there 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? No. God destroyed the city. But for the sake of those 10, He would have saved. There's this corporateness in the Bible. There's this corporate nature of the Bible. And to read the Bible well, you have to think in those terms. We, we see God's faithfulness and we see our need in the Gospel. Those are the challenges that we face. And with that orientation work finished, I want to share with you, and I realize we spent a lot of our time together already, I, I want to share with you, though, two lessons about our life together. We're going to dig into verses 11 to 13 for some specific ideas before we finish. Here's, here's the first one. Receive this as a warning, as a caution. We tend to turn blessings into barriers. We turn blessings into barriers. Uh, let me explain here. Verse 12 of this passage names five ways in which the Gentile readers in Ephesus are alienated from God. And they're written there. It says, first of all, they're separate from Christ. You are separate from Christ. That is, they do not have the hope of a Savior. They do not have a Messiah. Um, oh, if you read the rest of the book of Colossians and the rest of the book of Ephesians as we're going to come to, you will understand how sad a statement this is. Because in Christ, God has placed all the riches of His grace and the Gentiles, they have nothing. You don't have any of it, he says. You're excluded from citizenship in Israel, secondly. That is, um, you don't have any of the rights or privileges of being an Israelite. Uh, the Ephesians would understand what this means because they lived in Rome, but they were not by birth Roman citizens. And they didn't have Roman citizen rights. 
30 says you're foreigners to the covenants. All of the blessings, all of the promises that God offered to Abraham and to Moses and to David, they're not yours. They're somebody else's. Number four, you don't have hope. God has never offered hope to the Gentiles as a people. And finally, it says you're without God. The God of the Bible was not their God to worship and adore. All these things, you don't have these Gentiles, but the Jews did. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul makes a very similar list describing all the blessings that come to the Jews. And there was tension in Ephesus. There was tension, in fact, all the way through the empire between Jews and Gentiles over these differences. Um, These blessings that God had offered to the Jews, they actually became barriers between them and the Gentiles. Barriers that Jews celebrated. In fact, the Jews had names. They would call the Gentiles names. We have blessings from God and you don't. You're just, and you can see in the text, you're called the uncircumcised. You are uncircumcised. You are uncircumcised. This is how the Jews were, were thinking and acting towards those who were Gentiles. Now at this point in time, you might be inclined to think to yourself, this just does not seem fair. I'm missing out on all these blessings because I'm not Jewish? How is that fair? I didn't choose my parents. I didn't choose my, my uh, ethnicity. Why should God exclude me from His plans? Is there racism woven in the pages of Scripture because only the good news is here for the Jews and not for the Gentiles? This just does not seem fair or right. Again, you hate it. You hate it when somebody stereotypes you on the basis of some category you fit in. Does God do that in the Bible? The problem is not with the blessings themselves. The problem is how these blessings were corrupted and perverted. See, God's blessing for the Jews in the Old Testament, even in in Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, He calls him and He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and my purpose is that through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. You see, the Jews, by God's design, were not to be saying to the, the Gentiles, you are uncircumcised. They were not to be saying that. They were saying, they were supposed to say, come and let me introduce you to the God of the Bible who is the one true God who is worthy of worship. The whole tenor of the Old Testament is, come and see, come and see, come and see God's glory as He blesses these people. Look at this nation that God has made and how He has blessed them. Don't you want to know this God? That's the whole point of the Old Testament and God's blessing of the Jews. But what happened was, what has happened is the Jews have both failed to share those blessings and Gentiles never wanted them. We tend to turn blessings into barriers. It's a warning for us. Uh, We have this tendency too to turn blessings into barriers. Racial diversity is a blessing from God. We see God's creativity in the different hues and shapes and forms in which He makes people. It's to God's glory that we're different. It's it's, uh, the different languages that that are in the world testify to God's the variety of God's design. It's a blessing to be able to know and love people who are younger than you are and who are older than you are. Uh, And and it's it's a blessing 
It's a good gift that we have people in our congregation who have different skills and abilities. Some of us are athletic and some more musical and some more academic and some more personable and some more somber and some more jovial. And all these things are a reflection of the glory of God. So if you take all of humanity and you put it together in a beautiful mosaic and you see uh, different skills and abilities and colors and languages and textures and tones, it reveals God's glory. In fact, if you put them all together, it's just a foretaste of the greater glory that is God himself. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. And yet, and yet, we just take those blessings and, and walls go up. You're not like me. You don't like the things I like. You don't speak like me. You don't, you don't talk like I do. Uh, uh, go away. I'm going to find people just like me. Blessings become barriers. I heard a sermon a few years ago preached by a man by the name of Thabiti Anyabwile. It was one of the best sermons I have ever heard. And he was preaching on ethnicity. And he raised the issue of the NFL All-Star Game. Some of you have seen the NFL All-Star Game. In the NFL All-Star Game, they choose the best players from the league and they, they're appointed to their respective divisions teams. There's the AFC and the NFC. And the, they, they go out on the field and they have different colored jerseys. The NFC has, uh, say, blue and the AFC has on white. They all wear the same jerseys, the teams do, but they have uh, different helmets, don't they? They wear their helmets of their original team. They, they wear the helmets of the team that is playing them a lot of money to play football. The all-star game happens and you watch, and it, maybe it's interesting to watch, but you see here that they're not trying as much as they usually are. They're not running as fast, they're not hitting as hard, and the reason they don't do that during the all-star game is because no one is paying them to play at that moment in time. And if they run too hard, or if they hit too hard, or get hit too hard, uh, they might hurt themselves and really ruin their money-making ability. They're out there on the field, they got the jersey on, but they're not really playing for that team, are they? Anubili says, it strikes me that so often we're like the NFL players on the All-Star team. We wear jerseys that say Christ, but we wear a helmet that says ethnic culture. Or you could say, I'll say, my generation, or my political preference, or my cultural preference. He says, uh, he continues, that's the team we play for, that's the side we're on. And after we finish this little thing, this little all-star game, I'm going to go back and play with my squad. I'm not going to run hard with those not on my squad. He says, we need to flip that, and it is the gospel that enables us to do that. Uh, More committed to Christ than to anything else that's true about me. Which leads me to my second lesson about our life together in this passage. Christ breaks down barriers. Christ breaks down barriers barriers. Verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Steve's going to talk more next week about how this happens, but I'm struck by this contrast in this verse between being near and being far. We were far away and God has brought us near far from the promises, far from hope, far from God. Everyone here knows what it's like to be lonely. You feel isolated. You feel friendless. Loneliness is worse when you know that your friends are somewhere having a good time and you're not there. 
You're stuck at work when they're all having a good time. Or uh, you're home lonely and, and uh, so you log onto your Facebook page and you find out that all your friends are somewhere right now without you. It's a lonely experience. You didn't get invited for dinner. You weren't asked to be on the team. You go out to sign up for the turkey bowl and you sign out, find out that all of your friends signed up to, to play together and they didn't ask you. It's a lonely, isolating feeling. The text says that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I, I think again about Abraham and his, his prayer for Sodom. God, for ten people, for ten people, will you save the city of Sodom? And the answer in the Old Testament is no. There is not one person even in the city of Sodom for whom I will save that city. The New Testament answer to that question is yes, there is someone. There is one. His name is Jesus. He is righteous enough to stand before God on our behalf as our representative. He's the one who completely satisfied all of God's standards. He's the one who obeyed perfectly, and thus He's the one who is qualified to represent us before God and to become our sin-bearer. He's the one who is able to shed His blood on the cross and die as our substitute. And it's by faith in Him that we're brought near. And being brought near to God, we're simultaneously brought near to one another. No one climbs alone. No one follows Christ for himself, by himself, for herself, by herself. We've been brought near together through Jesus Christ and our calling is to move through this building, to move through this week knowing that this is true. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we pray, uh, we always pray when we look into your word and we come before you again today to ask you to take these truths and seal them to our hearts uh, that we might be transformed by the glorious message contained herein. Father, I pray that you would uh, cause to slip from the minds and memories of, of those here anything that I have said that has been unhelpful. And I, I pray that you would drive deeply uh, like a stake into minds and hearts things that are true and that honor Christ and that are helpful for our congregation. Father, I, I ask for mercy and grace that we would see and avoid the things that are here that would cause us to to pull away and to drift away from one another. And that I pray that you would grant us resilience and forbearance and patience as we move toward one another. God, give us this grace and this mercy that we might honor your Son and see your faithfulness and celebrate your gospel uh, with greater joy. Do that for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.